I'm on all the social medias, uh, with the exception of Twitter. I don't bother with that black hole. Um, but my, everywhere it's at Taylor Cashdan, T-A-Y-L-O-R-C-A-S-H-D-A-N. You can see it in the bottom left of the screen. Um, and my portfolio as well, if you want to see some of the cool stuff I'm working on, is taylorcashdan.com. Uh, but other than that, I'm accessible. I'm, I'm big on like responding to people and chatting it up. So send me a message. I, I went to Creative South for the first time and um, in uh, 2019, if you're watching this, years in the future. But, uh, and uh, it was awesome. It was phenomenal. And one of the things that I thought was really fantastic was um, somebody got sick and you kind of like happened to have like a complete and totally legit like talk, like ready to go <laughs> right at the yeah. last cynic. I, ironically about um, kind of stress and uh, it, the, the story's wild, man. It's, it, it was a, a roller coaster. That's yeah. for sure. So, and basically you kind of were like, you sent a little note like the night before that said, uh, said, Hey, I could do this if you want. And then you went to sleep and you woke up the next morning and you were on the, on the docket, right? Yeah. Yeah. That, that's pretty much it. I mean, so, uh, uh Jose Ciceraro was an illustrator actually out of Durham, North Carolina, uh, or in the area. So I'm from Raleigh, North Carolina. Uh-huh. So he's a, a friend of mine that I know. And I was excited to see him speak, um, in, you know, I created South and, uh, it turns out he caught a stomach bug and stayed home cause he was literally, like his family was throwing up everywhere. So I saw him on Facebook saying, you know, I couldn't make it. I'm so sorry. I'm bummed. So I, I literally sent a text message to uh, Lenny Terenzi and Mike Jones, um, the two of the, the people who, who work on Creative South, uh, just jokingly saying, you know, like, I have my deck ready. Like, put me in, coach. Uh, you know, just kidding. But, you know, I have the deck if you need it kind of thing. And I went and took a nap because I was, I was volunteering uh, as part of my ticket. So I had a workshop that morning. And typically I like stack conference stuff like minute to minute with, with things. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, I'm just going to try and like get some rest and enjoy the whole thing. So I went and took a nap. And I woke up to what I thought was my ringtone or my alarm clock, but it was actually my ringtone. It was Lenny calling, going, hey, man, uh, you're on at 1030 on Saturday. Uh, okay. And I was like, yeah. And then I hung up the phone. And then, like, a few minutes later when I came to, like, I just woke up. I was like, what did I just sign myself up for? So, like, I sent a text to him. I was like, you're not messing with me, right? And he was like, nope. And then, like, he said, like, in his head, he, like, counted down, like, ten, nine, eight, And then, a, a, like, a barrage of questions from, like, me texting him going, all right, so where do I go? And when do I do it? Like, back-to-back stuff. It was wild. It was wild. Yeah, it was crazy. And, and I would say, uh, had I not, like, seen your name not match up with the uh, – the expected speaker, I would not have known that that was like, you know, I mean, you obviously had a deck prepared and everything, but you did, did very yeah. well. And, and I want to get to, Thank I want to get to kind of that talk, but I, um, a little bit before we get started, give, give me your background. Um, what, what do you do? Where'd you come from? How'd you get there? Sure. Sure. So currently I'm a, a design lead at Fidelity Investments. I'm on their design systems team. Um, I help work on the, the, the components and some of their interface stuff for their like 401k solutions and that kind of thing. Um, and that's a relatively new job for me. That's uh, as of January of this year. Um, my background's primarily from a design perspective in the marketing and brand space. Um, I worked traditionally for a consulting firm and did all their like PowerPoint decks and like marketing collateral and that kind of thing. And then I jumped into 
kind of testing the waters in the digital space. Um, I worked for another firm in between then um, that had a lot of product design. And then I was kind of helping merge the marketing designers with the product designers because I was able to kind of jump between the worlds. Uh, then I freelanced for a little bit, um, mostly for small businesses. I like doing the brand work. Uh, and my family on my, on my mom's side are all small business owners. So I kind of know their needs a little more than I the average person because I, I lived it, you know. So I was able to kind of flex my skill set and I guess price range for to be truthful um, to what they needed, right? And able to kind of get the the high quality of work that they that they deserved at a price point they can afford. Um, so I did that for a while, and then I started a fidelity. So now I'm I'm freelancing a little bit, but more select projects that just to keep things you know keep the brain fresh. Um, but I, I am full time employed at a at a place, so it's it's a lot of fun. But before then, way before then, I was in uh, college, but I don't I didn't go to school for design, so it's kind of what I was getting at. Um, I had a, a non-traditional path from uh, from high school into, into the design world. So yeah, which is which is awesome. I'm kind of I'm kind of interested in your path because sure. uh, before we went live, you said you changed your major eight times, and in my under, undergrad, I changed my major five times. And so I'm cool, kinda, yeah, yeah. I'm kind of curious. What would you do? Yeah, so in high school, I kind of got the bug uh, on my newspaper staff. Um, we were doing page layouts, you know, creating ads, cartoons, that kind of thing. But I was also writing at the time, too. So I enjoyed the whole whole process of that. Um, when I went to college, I originally applied and got in as an English major because I thought, like, I was going to do this writing thing and the design stuff would kind of be on the side and just kind of a fun thing I keep up with. Or I would have to create the pages to house my stories. So I kind of doubled down into that. And when I got um, denied from the journalism school in North Carolina, I got into NC State. Uh, it's traditionally an engineering college. So when I went there, uh, the first thing I did is oh, I got in as an English major and I went straight to the newspaper because it was where I kind of felt like I was at home. So I was able to start there doing uh, page layouts, design work, um, while also writing. So I was still playing kind of both sides of that coin and kind of as – things developed, I realized like, I'm really into this whole design thing. And then I need to like double down a little bit on it. But the design school at NC State is super competitive. Um, and they also require you to be in the design school for four years because of the way they have their studios set up. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you jump in, even having been there, you know, three years, you have to start over for additional four and I could not afford that. So i figured out that like the way NC state worked was they had their, their major specific courses and their uh, like core discipline stuff that everyone had to take. So I just made sure my schedule matched, you know, to the graduation plan for all the core classes. And then I jumped around from major to major trying different things to make sure I really wanted to do this design thing. Um, until I, until I got all the way through and I ended up graduating with a degree in technology education with a focus in graphic communication um, and that let me take an internship and do a bunch of, of design work that wasn't necessarily class related. Um, so I was building a portfolio with, with real client work, um, even as a junior in college. So it was, it was a lot of fun. And I only graduated a semester late. So <laughs> that's pretty good. That is awesome. That's fantastic. Yeah. And I love, I love um, that you were able to come into it sideways because um, one of the things that I love about like design and illustration and a lot of like the visual com is uh, there's no like there's no bar there's no gatekeepers um, there's you know are you easy to work with and can you can you communicate visually well 
you know, and yeah, and I don't think it was always that way. And I think that's yeah. been a, the last five to ten years or so max of when it's kind of you know if you talk about the the I think the three big things that kind of open design to everyone is number one, it's starting to get a seat at the table in in the business world. Yeah, you know, people are realizing it's not an afterthought; it's got to be done from the beginning, right? So so it's more and more people are interested in it, which obviously creates the buzz of more and more people wanting to learn it, right? The second is the tools are just crazy. I mean, you've got free tools out there that you can literally build full stack apps you can you can put together brand packages you can make collateral um at a quality that just was never there before or cost so much money that you know you couldn't you couldn't get to it or unless you worked for a place or you got some crazy discount somehow and it only lasted like for a 30-day trial you know and i can fondly remember friends of mine trading like the the pirated copies you know of software to try and get our stuff together you know back in the day and it's wild. And I get, and, I, and at that third tier is I think the design industry has evolved in a way where it used to be kind of cutthroat, right? It was, you know, all about the awards and then, you know, my clientele list is better than your clientele list. And it's become a thing where people really, really do want to help bring each other up because there's more than enough work out there for all of us. And, you know, the, the coolest thing I think is as you bring more people into the picture, you get to make more, right? You get to make new things. You're challenged in ways you may have not thought of. I mean, I think the coolest thing I was able to do while I was a, uh, you know, a semi-design major in college as part of the education program is go and talk to other students and just see how their workflows went, you know, where I was pretty ingrained in mind by that time. But seeing how, like, a student who'd never opened Photoshop and Design Illustrator before would tackle the start of a project, I was like, oh, I would have never thought to, like, you know, use that tool that way or whatever. And so I'm able to learn from very, very junior folks and they're learning from me because I've been in the world a little while, you know, so it's just, it's so push and pull now in a positive way that I think it's like the best time to, to want to explore design with, you know, like you said, zero buried entry. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. And and I love that because um, I'm, I'm kind of all about uh, anything that kind of tears down like the ivory towers and the, and the uh, kind of the elitism that, that permeates kind of any, anywhere, um, you know, as soon as it becomes kind of democratized, um, you know, there are a whole new set of problems that come with that. Um, but I, I really like anyone, you know, who's willing to put in the time and the effort to become good at something to be, to be allowed in, you know, whether they have the right pedagogy or, or, you know, whatever. And so, uh, so it's good. Cause I, I went through, I went through and changed the major a number of times. I came out with communication, I went into video and then I went into photography and then, I mean, I kind of came in to design and illustration by way of kind of interest and side projects. Um, yeah. It sounds like you tutored around it a little bit before you got, you got right in. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so, and I, I don't know if, I don't know if certain people would still call me a designer, uh, though, though I, you know, do it and teach it professionally. Um, and it kind of no, depends, but I think it's bull. I think that that's like when people, I think the, so I help manage a Facebook group called the Perspective Collective. Uh, yeah. Scotty Russell, I don't know if you've ever, if your audience has heard of him. He's a, he's a designer and illustrator, um, does a lot of great work, and he uh, shepherded this this Facebook community based on um, the Black with No Cream community that was created by Ben vs. Real World, the video account. Okay. And the idea is it's very much central focused, and we have a survey of when people are coming in to the group so we can kind of shape the, the, the material that's in there, and he can use that as fodder for the podcast. And the biggest thing people like consistently come back with is either number one, like they can't figure out time and how to, to execute on, on their vision or their dreams or whatever. And two is this like fear of like, I'm not qualified enough to even be in this group. 
kind of stuff. Right. You know, I, I can't call myself a creator. I can't call myself a designer. And honestly, it's just a ton of crap, man. I think if you are making things, whether it's for clients or for fun or just because you're bored, like you're a creator, man. And yeah. I think there's a nice part, like, and, and what's funny is I, I'm ripping Draplin off a hundred percent with this, but you know, you don't have to do work for money to feel like you're doing it for something. Right. I mean, like, right. He says it, and it's true, and, and I've done it, and it's true. I, I've done work for food before, you know, like, oh, someone buy me lunch for this little logo project or whatever. As long as there's some form of an exchange, even if that's, like, something trivial, you know, it, it, it makes people kind of buck up a little bit. It's like, all right, this is real because something's on the line. And it could right. be something as simple as a burrito, or it could be ten grand. You know, when there's some kind of exchange, it's, a, it's an air of responsibility that I don't think people recognize until it happens. And if you're making a, a wedding invitation for your cousin, right? And that's your gift to them. Like that's an exchange and you're a designer and there's absolutely no reason why you can't call yourself that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think, I think so many of us in the creative space, um, kind of, uh, suffer from or deal with kind of imposter syndrome. Um, and, and, and a lot of people don't even realize that it's out there. It's, it's, it's a fascinating thing. The idea basically is that you're, you, you think that you're the only one in the room that doesn't belong. You think that you're the only one in the room that is faking it until you make it and that everybody else knows exactly what's going on. And the reality of the situation is that almost everyone in the room is feeling that way. And so it's this, it's this weirdly ironic kind of toxic self-talk situation um, that just it seems really to is. And that's the funny part is that everyone's feeling it, but no right. one's wanting to talk about it. Yeah. Right? And, and I think it's almost, it's almost just part of the human condition. I mean, my daughter's nine, you know, and she's in, she's in gymnastics and she was telling me, yeah, I mean, everybody else kind of, you know, they belong there and blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, are they saying things to you? And she said, no, I just know they're thinking it. And, and I was like, so you're thinking that they're thinking these things. And, and then we talked about imposter syndrome, but it's like, you know, a nine year old in gymnastics is going to experience it. And then you get into the, get into the very visual field. Um, it's, it's really hard to tell uh, as a general public, if an accountant is a good accountant, but it's really easy for everyone to have an opinion on, on our work because they can see it. And they think that because they can see it, that, you know, that, that they've got an opinion on it. And so it's a weird space because it's, it's so visually accessible um, that it kind of, it kind of opens you up and that can be super vulnerable and super scary. But I totally agree with you. If you are creating and making stuff, um, that's it. It's like, if you want to break into comics, make a comic, no one's stopping you. you know, if I you think it's the irony of the whole thing. Like, I think that's the irony of the whole thing is like, there's, there's so much subjectivity on what's effective, on what's good work, on what's real, right. that it's it's crazy. I mean, there's some people out there that, that are shipping around what I would not consider complete work, yeah. right, or finished nice work. But people are eating it up. And you know what? There's a there's a point in time where you go, I mean, they, they, let's, let's make it even more granular. There's work that I've done for clients that I will never show to people. Yep. Because I'm not proud of it, right? Because I don't think it's the best that I could have done you know, with respect to like creativity, but it executed on what they wanted, right? I took whatever their vision was and made it into a thing. And arguably that is far more important than me feeling like I, you know, uh, tried this new illustration style and rocked it, you know, like that's, it's a different barrier. And I think even as designers, we can get into this like self-critical loop of garbage where we're just crapping on each other's work, looking for reasons to be like, mm, you should do that better or that can be pushed farther. 
or whatever, when realistically, like, we forget, like, we made something out of nothing. Yeah. Right? And that in itself is pretty amazing, even if it's a line on a page. You know, to say that you can abstractly say that this is, you know, the beginning and end of something because it's got two points. Like, there's something to that, you know? And I think we forget. We forget that that's, that's how far we've come, is that we've gotten to a place where we can be comfortable enough crapping on that line because it's not thick enough or it's curved or whatever. <laughs> when we made it in the first place, right? It's just so wild to me. Yeah. Yeah, it's weird. And it's, and it's uh, I don't know, I think he, I think he could dive into, the, like, the whole thing. Um, on that, just kind of the toxic nature of that and everything. But it's so. It, I, here's here's the one thing that I, the one thing that I have to say to everybody about that is, um, I think that there is a loud, vocal, and toxic small group of people. Um, but most people that I meet that are doing this type of kind of creative work or whatever um, are really awesome. You know, really approachable, really cool. Um, and, and in anything, you're going to get kind of that, kind of that elitist mentality. And, and a lot of times it's, it's based on, you know, either, either fear or, you know, delusion of pride or whatever, but, but the majority of the people, um, especially at something like creative South, um, most of the people that you talk to at Adobe max, you know, um, you're going to get, you're going to get kind of the, the people who are trying to put some sort of class system into it over, but most of us are, uh, not saying the negative things that you think that they're saying about your work. And, and Chris Oatley says one of, one of my favorite things about this is you're never as good or as bad as you think you are, you know, That's the truth. and so if you think you knocked it out of the park, you, you've probably got some room to grow. And if you think you're the worst, uh, you're, you're definitely not as bad as you think you are. So and anyway. that doubt can fuel like your evolution. Right. I mean like the more, and that's, it's a, it's a dangerous position to be in, right? Because too much doubt, can cause depression and a bunch of other things that right. can spiral out of control very quickly. But a little bit of doubt goes a long way because it, it, it takes you off your high horse. Yeah. Right. If you don't know that you're going to crush this presentation and you're going to walk into it and be like, you know, like it, every time I, I talk to people, whether it be like on a formal setting, like a, like a, like a talk at a conference or on a podcast or even like walk, you know, talking to like at an AIGA event at, to like a group of people, like I'm always walking in there going, I really hope what I'm going to say to them, like, is actually a value. Yeah. You know, and this isn't just me, like, blowing smoke up my own butt. Like, that it's that it's real, that, that what I'm, I'm bringing up is enough for someone to go, you know what, I've learned something. But I think what that all teeters back to is kind of what, what you were just talking about, like, with the, the people. Like, there's so many crappy people out there, but it's a small group of crappy people, right? And I don't care who you are or what industry you're in, like, there is a tribe out there for you. You just have to find it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, I kind of want to talk about I kind of want to talk about your experience. You've had a very unique um, kind of experience with with something that I think we we all deal with. And so to get to give you a little background, and I know that I know that you've watched a little bit of the show and, and whatnot. Um, but I, I came from um, kind of like like we already said, kind of wandering around trying to trying to find out you know kind of what works for me, whatever and. And uh, eventually I, I came into illustration. You know, I've been doing graphic design and art direction and, and marketing for a living for, for a while. Um, but I got into cartooning and comics and illustration and editorial and things like that. And um, like I just felt like I finally came home. And for a couple years, um, I had this I had this work. Uh, I, 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 because it made me feel like whole, um, I, it, I drove it too hard 
and and I would I would do these kind of like what I call like neuron activity where it's all or nothing, and it would be like pedal to the metal until burnout, and then I would crash, you know, and I'd be fried. Um, and then I would, I would jump into another kind of side project or, or personal hustle or whatever. And I'd, and I just, you know, like not sleep for, for days. I'd, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd go for a week at a time where I'm getting three or four hours of sleep every night. Um, and then kind of in the midst of this, I, I had to get a master's to be able to continue working where I was working. So I jumped in and I got a, I got a, like a three year master's in 14 months while I was working full time. And so I got kind of like in this, this cycle of if I did something entertaining or calming or like if I sat down, um, you know, and even just like was having a conversation with a friend or whatever, I felt like I was doing something wrong because I wasn't like making. And it was like a really weird space to be in. Um, and then I, another guy, Joshua Kimball, who started the 48 hour art check with me, um, was kind of going through a similar thing for different reasons. And we started this thing where we just checked in with each other every 48 hours. And we talked about, we talked about what we had accomplished, right? And that was easy because I was, I was spitting stuff out all the time, but we also talked about what was hard, the challenges that we overcame and what our plan was for the next 48 hours. And what it did was it caused me to think about, like the difficulties that I was causing myself because of that. And then also I wasn't planning. I, I was, I was like just a crazy man, just sprinting in any direction that felt good at the time. And so once I started kind of leveling it out, now I have like, I, I still think I probably am a little bit, you know, closer to the, the burnout bubble than, uh, than, than I should be. But now it's evened out anyway. So all of that is to say, like I was in the middle of this. I think we had done, you know, upwards of about a hundred episodes when I went to creative South, you know, of doing this kind of three times a week, we've cut down to two, two times a week now. Um, and then I sit down and I hear your story and I was like, I, I this is, I, I've got to, I've got to know more about this. So, so catch, catch everybody up just, just real briefly. You, you had kind of an experience or series of experiences that kind of was like this, this wake up call. Sure. I mean, I think the the theme of what you're saying overall is it's hard to know which fire to put out when it seems like everything's on fire. Yeah. Right? And and a lot of that's self-imposed. And I think I'm I'm a perfect use case for that. I mean, if you talk about from from day one of college to like today, right? Uh, I was always the type that, that wanted to be involved in whatever else was going on, whether it be socially, professionally, um, side project related, you know, whatever it is. And and because I I found enjoyment from from doing. Right. And I was never, you know, I didn't grow up in a household where like your parents shipped you off to stuff, you know, to, to, to stay busy, whatever. I just, I genuinely wanted to be involved in tons of things because I liked, you know, being included and feeling like I was doing things. And that set me up in a weird pattern of behavior where I felt like if I had free time that I needed to be filling it with something. And that could have been a social event. That could have been a side project. It could have been client work. It could have been schoolwork, whatever it was. But I felt like, like I wasn't allowed to relax unless it was some kind of, interaction or productivity or something. Right. And it's, it's a difficult spot to be in because number one, it's completely, it's bull crap, right? That's, that's totally not true. You need to give right. yourself time to breathe. Um, but worse, worse yet, it puts you into a pattern. Uh, the way I describe it is like, you know, it, it's hard to recognize something as toxic when the output is seemingly productivity, right? right. Like I had a habit and, and I tell people this all the time. Like I, I never learned how to study, right? 
you talk about college, talk about high school, talk about anything educational. Like I don't know how to, to effectively like like repeat and retain information that I'm not like wholeheartedly interested in. Right? You show me ten shortcuts in Illustrator, and I'm like a pig rolling in crap. Like I'm so involved and ecstatic. Like that I'm in it. Like I could rattle them back to you. But if you're you're making me do math problems, like I have to do it right then and there. Otherwise, it's gone. Like in the brain, out the other. Yeah. And the problem with that is I, I leaned into it hard right. all through high school, through college, through the beginning of my professional career. I left things as close to the last minute as possible, hoping that I could channel this like idea or state of like super creativity, churn through whatever I was doing because I was on this like creative high, and then output this project right and. The crappy part is I got really good at that, right? So I was making my deadlines. I was hitting, you know, the the asks by my clients, by my teachers, by my employers, whatever it was. And I was delivering on what they asked for on time and at least to what I thought was delivering on their expectations. And no one ever stopped me to say, you know, this isn't where it needs to be or we need to add to this or whatever. Um, so it was all validation. Like, yep, Taylor's doing the right thing. Like, this is the, the perfect um, – you know, uh, order of operations to get the stuff done. Um, and I operated like that for a very, very long time. Um, and it got to the point where, you know, I, I was starting to like damage friendships. I was feeling more exhausted, you know, and all that led to this, this one morning when I, I, I was, I went to bed normally, you know, the night before, uh, getting ready for work, you know, prepping all my crap and, and going to bed around midnight, which is when I technically normally go to sleep. And I woke up at around 7 a.m., which is well before my normal alarm, um, drenched in sweat. And I felt this pounding on my chest and I was really dizzy. Um, and I figured, you know, maybe I just had a bad dream or, you know, I somehow like, you know, couldn't catch my breath or something like that. So I got up out of bed. I went to the bathroom, washed my face, um, you know, try to kind of snap out of it. And long story short here is I was actually uh, experiencing what's called atrial fibrillation. Um, it's when the chambers of your heart uh, kind of have an electrical impulse issue where they beat at different rates. Um, and one tries to compensate for the other and vice versa. So uh, the short of that is like I was, while I was sitting still, you know, in my bed, Normal people's uh, heart rate when they sleep is between 40 and 60 beats a minute, depending on the person. You know, when you're awake and moving around, it's between like 70 and 90, depending on how athletic you are. Uh, I was sitting still at 180 beats a minute. So it was quite literally double uh, the normal heart rate speed. So that explained why I felt winded, explained why I was all sweaty and gross, um, why I had the headache and everything. And, And I didn't know any of this at the time, right? So I just went off to work, figuring I just had a crappy morning, like I'll be fine. Um, and this pitter patter on my chest, like never went away. So I was at work and I felt funny and I had a coworker come and like check to see if I was going nuts or not. And I ended up going to the hospital. Um, and that resulted in a, in a couple day staycation at a local Rex hospital of the doctors pretty much saying like, we know what's happening. We just can't figure out why. Uh-huh. Um, because at the time I was 24, um, and atrial fibrillation happens typically in folks that are either overweight, uh, diabetic, um, under some kind of influence of, of some kind of drug or are very much older. And by older, I mean like sixties and above right. um, to the point where, you know, there's some kind of like organ stuff that's going on, not at 24, you know, presumably healthy, like maybe a little over, you know, weight for what's, what's technically acceptable. But other than that, like clean bill of health. So they pretty much boiled it down to the only thing that, that they couldn't rule out literally was stress. Um, and when they would ask me, like, are you, are you stressed out? I was like, well, I mean, no, you know, I don't feel stressed. 
And they're like, well, you know, what do you do in a, you know, in a normal day? And like, I started rattling off all this crap and they were like, this is like one day. I was like, yeah, like this is just normal. <laughs> like I go to work, I come home, I do this, I do that, like, you know, all before bed and people, and you know, they were just flabbergasted. Right. And that's not in like a, a braggadocious way. Like I'm not saying like, ha ha, I do more than the average person. I just, I didn't know any better. Right. You know, I, that, was, that was my pattern. You yeah. Know, and, and they the, were just the interesting thing about what you're saying is, is we've, we've built this culture around kind of the worship of busy, you know, this, this idea of, um, you know, if you're not optimizing every moment, you know, that you're awake, you know, and somehow, you know, figuring out how to lucid dream so that you can solve problems in your sleep, that you're, you're somehow less than, you know, those that are burning the candle at both ends. Um, I, I have a question. So leading, leading up to this, so you're super productive, right? You're getting, you're kind of this positive feedback loop of, um, you know, of productivity, client feedback, you know, like, I think it just feels good to like finish stuff. So you're finishing tons of stuff. Um, but you also mentioned that you were kind of, uh, you're kind of like torching some relationships and things like that in, in the back of your mind, were you, were you, what was your self-talk about kind of your relationships with everybody? Were you like, you know, I'll screw them. They don't, they don't understand what it's like to be a creative or were you kind of regretting some of those things? What, what was that kind of going into that morning? Um, you know, the, the interesting part is I think it's, it's twofold. So the first part is, you know, I never, I was never like, you know, screw them there. They don't get it. Like I had, I, I always lived with people. So I always had a house full of folks and I would just, you know, when they went to bed, I would start, you know, doing stuff. So I would, I would try to like be social as possible and then move on. Um, but I did pass up on a lot of social stuff because I felt like I needed to get this client project done or I needed to work these extra hours. Um, and the convenient part of the time was when I was working at the newspaper in college, I mean, our production shift was pretty much 3 PM to midnight. So when I was doing that and you know, missing up on those uh, social things, I was with other people. So yeah. I wasn't by myself, like in a room doing nothing. So it was, it was social enough, but it was still work. You know, and I think the the challenge is as I as I you know after college and into my professional career, I started filling my time with work instead of social things, which is not a bad thing in general. But you know, y- you start to realize that that the more you tell people no, you know, no, I can't come to this, no, I I have plans tonight, or no, I got this client call, I can't come to dinner, the less they start calling you. Right. Right. Or start inviting you to things. And for a while I, I was mad at people. I was like, well, you know, F them. Like they're not, they can't even reach out anymore. Like, like I thought we were friends, whatever. And then you like, like a moment of self-reflection happens and you're like, nah, dude, like you, how many times did you tell them? No. Right. Right. And for good reason, you know, uh, to a certain extent, like you were doing cool work, you were, you were, you know, making money so that you could go on these big trips that they were going on or whatever, but you can't expect people to keep up with you if you're not willing to keep up with them. Right. And that goes both ways, whether that's literally being social and being out or simply, you know, shooting someone a text like, Hey, I heard you're working on that project. Like how, how's it going? Like you said, that 48 hour check you're doing with your buddy. Yeah. You know, those little interactions is what keeps that social stuff going. Right. So I, the self-talk was more like you're doing this for a reason. Keep going. It'll be fine. But I never factored in like what I was I don't want to say giving up because that, that makes it super weighty, but I, I didn't acknowledge some of the core, I guess, social development things that I was sacrificing in order to m- spend time working, right? And I, and I don't think I would change a thing, I mean, because I, I wouldn't be who I am and know the things I know today without all this stuff happening. But, you know, in the same note, you know, could I have been a better friend to some folks who wanted to, to hang out with me? And, like, could could, could have some of those relationships have developed into other things, because I messed them up by like not being as 
receptive to to what they wanted sure absolutely you know who knows but i think in the same in the same vein it's been more a wake up call for me to go look man like you can't be angry at other people for stuff that you're causing right right and i think that's the harder pill to swallow yeah and there's a there's you know i mean there's two things that kind of come to mind as you're talking about that is one is uh, the idea of opportunity costs, um, wh- whether it feels weighty or not, the reality of the situation is that every every choice that we make is at the cost of you know the next best option, and and so when we do um, you know make a decision to you know not do something, in essence, we're making a value judgment that I value the one that I chose more than I value the other thing, um, and. And that is kind of a hard pill to swallow, especially if you're looking at like people. You know, if you're if you're if you're choosing things uh, and activities over over other human beings, um, you know, there are times that you have to do that. There are times that you should do that. Um, but I think oftentimes um, when we're trying to kind of go into this kind of manic creativity state, um, I think sometimes I make things feel more urgent than they are to justify absolutely the sacrifice of that relationship. You know, and, Absolutely. It, and so I, I completely agree. Um, anyway, so, okay. So you're well, it's, going- it's the same thing with that imposter syndrome. We, we, there's this inherent feeling that's like within us. And I would say it's more rampant in the creative sphere that like, we feel like the well's going to dry up. Right. Right. If we don't take that project, if we don't do that thing, that is never going to happen again. Like we won't have the chance to do it again. And in some cases, sometimes that's true, right? That dream project comes through the door. Sure. Like, and you don't, you need to sacrifice some things to get it done. Sure. But that doesn't mean every single time something cool comes knocking, something shiny shows up. You have to like beeline like a, like a, a bug to a light. Yeah. And if, uh, if, if you make it feel like every opportunity is like, you know, the, the, the best thing to ever come through the door, it does kind of skew your, it does kind of skew your, your view of reality. <laughs> You know, and and it and it makes it so that your behavior is kind of unsustainable. Um, yep. You know, and I think I think both of us, uh, I I think what you experienced like medically is probably uncommon, but I think the road that kind of led you there, um, you know, who who knows that I wasn't heading north towards the same path, but I think most young creatives um, today, I mean, you look at you look at anxiety is on the rise. Um, you know, you look at people that are. They're dealing with all kinds of all kinds of weird, you know, like addictions and things. Like, you know, they're saying that there's a the correlation between um, anxiety and depression that directly relates to to Instagram. Um, you know, and the rise of Instagram is directly correlated, or at least there's some, you know, I don't know if correlation causation in in that study are the same. But the fact of the matter is, we feel like we need to be connected. We feel like we, you know, like FOMO and all that jazz um, make it so that we have to. Uh, you know, always be, always be on, always be going. And, and we don't give ourselves a break. They, they've done, um, I've, I've done a lot of, a lot of work in this space where the value of being bored, um, we're not bored anymore. We only have programmed time. Either we're, we're producing or we're being entertained, but like, when's the last time most people who aren't just kind of crunchy granolas, like just walked outside, you know, in a, in, a, in the woods or in the park or something it's like it used to be, that humanity in general, I can't even imagine the situation, but you, you, you think of this a couple thousand years ago, people would notice when a new star showed up in the sky. Like, how is that even <laughs> possible? But like you had, you had, there would be people and they'd be like, that star was not there last night. And that's, that's a situation yeah. that as, as a, 
as a species we can't even comprehend right now because we're in this we're in this weird churn of like trying to be machines uh but we're still very organic and to the point of like transhumanism where there are some people that are like i think i could like add this thing to my face that would make me more productive you know or whatever and it's like you know there's all kinds of weird stuff going on okay so so you're in that space you're you're at the doctors they're saying it's stress um and and where where did you go from there well, the first thing I did is I grabbed my work laptop so I can email my boss saying I'm not going to come in. And that's yeah. a true thing to the point where the doctor was like, close the computer. You're in a hospital bed. And I was like, but I have a deadline at the end of the week. Like I have to let them know I'm not going to be in. And he was like, you understand the irony of what's happening right now. Right. <laughs> and I, and I just, it wouldn't compute, you know? And I was like, okay, I get it. But like, I still have to let them know. Like I have to be like good teammate. Like da-da-da. he was like, all right, fine. You could do that from your phone. You could send a text message and call it a day. And I was like, you know what? You're right. Like, done, right? Close the computer, tuck it away. And at that moment, I realized, like, I was like, oh, man. Like, that was my first reaction after all this stuff. You know, like, something's got to change. Yeah. Right? And some of that, you can say, maybe that was the employer. Maybe that wasn't all self-imposed. And that's probably true in in some respects. But, you know, I think uh, at the end of the day, you know, I'm to blame for this. Uh, the employer may have been a catalyst or the people around me may have been a catalyst, but at the end of the day, I was making these decisions, right? Yeah. I was the one put, you know, opening the computer, putting pen to paper, making this happen. Um, and it just, it made me rethink everything, right? And whether we're talking about workflow, talking about the people that were around me, talking about my independent choices and what I was doing, how I was spending my free time, what it meant to be bored again, you know, what it meant to have self-imposed deadlines, um, for arbitrary things like I, I, I started like making stickers because I just wanted to see what it'd be like to like make a sticker. Number one, number two, see what these, this style would look like when it was printed kind of thing. Yeah. And I, I tell people like, I have this really bad habit, which of monetizing my hobbies. Yeah. Right. Like I wanted to print this sticker cause I thought it'd be fun. And then someone was like, Oh my God, can I have one of those? I was like, yeah, sure. Like I printed a dozen of them. Like, you can have one. And then it was like, Oh, my friend wants to buy one too. I'm like, well, I didn't sell it to you. You can just give them one. You know, and it just, it spirals into, okay, maybe I should sell these, you know, and then boom, now all of a sudden there's another thing I got to track where I got to put up online and keep track of and market and whatever, when it was just supposed to be this fun little thing, you know, and that that same construct, that process could be applied to everything that I was dealing with, you know, at the time. So like I had to figure out like, all right, how do I break this, this chain, right? How do I number one, stop this productivity loop or, or seemingly productivity loop that I was doing all this great stuff. Right. In this time. Number two, how do I, number one, reestablish the relationships that I, you know, neglected and or cut off the ones that were really just not, you know, they were, they were toxic in some way, shape or form. And then three, how do I figure out with all of that time for myself? Uh, like I'm, I'm an extrovert, you know, a hundred percent and I recharge around people, but I've realized more and more that like there's value in, you know, turning all that off and just being alone, whether that be to play video games, watch a movie, read a book, just sleep, like whatever it is, there's value in that time. Um, which is also kind of a hard thing because, you know, I'm, I'm a very social person. I like working with people. I like being around people. So taking all those things into consideration, like everything about what I was doing in work and in life needed to be relooked at. Yeah. And that was just like an astounding kick in the nuts that I was not expecting on a Tuesday. So did you, um, I mean, that's, I feel like the phrase existential crisis gets thrown around loosely and with no meaning. (laughs) But I mean, I think what you're actually experiencing there was an actual existential crisis. Like you basically had to redefine 
how you felt about yourself and your activities and your place in the world, which is yep. crazy, right? To, to be forced to do that. It's like, um, I, I'm trying to think of an analogy, but I mean, you, you perceived yourself a specific way. You had both neurological and chemical and external feedback that reinforced that super heavily. Um, and then basically the doctor says, um, if you don't stop doing this, you're going to like, your heart's going to explode. Yeah. So my body was like, all right, cool. Thanks for doing this without consulting me. Right. And you yeah. know what? I'm sick of putting up with your bull crap. Yeah. And I was like, nope, we're going to hit the restart button and you're just going to have to deal with it. So what was the, what was that like mentally? What was like that spiritually? I mean, how did you, how did you go going from that? You're like in, initially shock, but then basically rebuilding, rebuilding from scratch or rearranging the mess or, I mean, did you, did you clear everything away and then start from like foundational stuff or did you kind of see no, all I, the scattered yeah. balls in the air and try to organize them? What, what was that like? It's a little bit of both. I think the, the hard thing is this wasn't like a broken leg, right? People right. couldn't see it. So a select group of people knew I went to the hospital, you know, they all knew I was out of work and, you know, the rumors kind of spread, like, why is Taylor not showing up to the office? You know, why did he cancel all this stuff? You know, that was just in the one week of, like, when I went to the hospital till I needed a few days to recoup from being stuck in a hospital bed. You yeah. know, they were, like, take the rest of the week off kind of thing. And so certain people showed up at the hospital, like, to kind of see what's up, you know, see how I was doing, which was I was very grateful for. You know, and they kind of reported back to the other groups that were interested in asking and whatever. And, you know, I got a bunch of phone calls. But the – and I'm very grateful for all of that. But I think the – I didn't even absorb what was happening for a good while later. Like, I knew what was going on, and I knew, like, I had to, to chill out. Um, and having, to, having missed all this stuff, like deadlines because I was out and whatever, like, gave me a good excuse to put pause on stuff. But I mean, immediately when I got back, it was like, all right, how do I monitor this thing? Like, how do I keep track of it so that I can tell when I'm getting too close, you know, to being too stressed out or whatever? Like, what can I do? Like, first thing was, all right, ditching coffee. Like, I'm, I need to nix that. Second thing, I need to figure out how to monitor this heart rate, right? So I can tell if I'm slipping into this AFib thing again. Because yeah. I didn't know if I'd been doing it before and I just never noticed, you know? And so I started to, like, try to figure out, like, all right, how do I dissect this so I can make it manageable and trackable? in a way that I can at least find some new semblance of order. Right. And so the first, you know, couple of weeks, it was just like, all right, a doctor's visits and I was taking this new medication and I took a little bit of time off from work just to kind of get myself resettled. Mind you, all of this happened uh, very much around the time where I just closed on, on a apartment. So like I had just like got this apartment that I'd had no furniture and stuff in it. Like I just bought it. And I was doing all this stuff and I was working, working, working. So I took this break to kind of reset like on my own. I took a week off and also to kind of like, all right, like I've got this new home. I need to make mine and I need to make sure that I do it in a way that doesn't also, you know, create this behavior again. Like I used to have my, my desk in my bedroom. Oh, you know, yeah. My office was there. So there was never a break. And I, you know, my excuse was I used the, the TV screen or the computer screen as a TV so I can like watch movies and whatever. But also work is right there. And then yeah. I can just go to bed, you know, or whatever. So first thing was like, now I have this extra room in my new place. Like that's going to be my office. So I can literally close the door and be done, like disconnect. Yeah. And I was like, the first thing, like I actually realized like, oh, this is giving me a spot where I can literally turn off. Like that's helpful. Right. That was, that was kind of big change. Number one. Um, I went out and bought an Apple watch because I, what I was realizing was I, whenever I thought I was flaring up, like getting anxious or whatever, I would immediately like check my pulse, like assuming the worst that I was just going to all of a sudden get into this AFib rhythm and I'd be screwed. 
And it got to the point where it was just ridiculous. Like I was like, I could have like farted and been like, Oh my God, I'm in a weird rhythm. You know, I need to check this. And it was, it was toxic. So where normally technology would uh, create this bad habit, I figured, all right, if I buy this Apple watch, which I didn't want to do, like I, I've always been of the frame of mind, like an Apple watch is useless. It's just an extension of your phone screen. I don't need to be more connected. Right. But I was looking at all these like devices. I'm like, what can I get that will do the heart rate thing for me without me having to manually check it? Yeah. Right. And there's tons of devices out there that are very expensive that are mobile echocardiograms, which is that big thing they tack on to do your heart rate. And I didn't want to, you know, dive too down, deep down this hole because my cardiologist was like, you don't need any of these things. Like, you will be fine. Like, doing the manual checking, it might be annoying, but it's perfectly functional. You don't need to spend all this money on this stuff. But I was like, all right, maybe I don't need to spend all this money, but I need to get something that will take the edge off. You know, it was an addiction. Like, I needed to find something that would fix this problem, right? right? So I bought the Apple Watch because, you know, number one, it had a heart rate reader on it that was pretty reliable. And there's a bunch of articles about how it was, you know, from the heart association that it was, you know, decent and whatever. It was an extension of my Apple addiction. So it, it just worked in the ecosystem. <laughs> and, you know, I was like, well, it'll solve some issues, you know. So I got it. And, and honestly, I'm very happy I did because it in my head, I was able to go from I need to check this all the time to if there's an emergency, this device will let me know. Yeah, so it so took some of the. So that's interesting because at first when you said that you got that, I was wondering whether you were doing that because uh, whether you were doing that so that you could come right up to the line, but not cross it. But in, a, in actuality, it 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 kind of took that off of your mental plate, and so you were, yeah, you I were offloading was, a process, uh, kind of freeing yes. you up. Yeah, it, it was less how do I get stressed enough before it becomes a thing? Yeah. It was more, how do I figure out when I'm stressed? Cause I didn't even right. know when I was stressed because yeah. it was, stress was normal to me. Like I couldn't measure it in my mental space to be like, Oh, I'm stressed out right now. Unless I got like a headache or I was getting, you know, antsy about something like that was the only clear signature, but right. it was very obvious that I was not able to figure it out considering all the stuff I was working on. Yeah. Right. So this device gave me the ability to say, okay, I can look down at any moment and click, you know, view heart rate and it'll tell me the current thing. It'll also track all this data. So if I ever have a problem, I can just turn it over to the cardiologist and be like, here's the problem, fix it, you know, or if I was in this bad rhythm, it would ding or notify me or whatever. So it actually took a lot of stress off my plate, which I did not expect um, originally. So like kudos to to that. Yeah, that's awesome. And I mean, if, if those watching, if you haven't experienced something terrifying like this, uh, I, I had a I had a thing uh, kind of kind of unrelated, but but my response is very similar. Where for whatever reason my brain started swelling up, uh, they still don't know mm-hmm. exactly what was going on. It is the most painful experience ever. But basically, I was out. I was like out, and they like medically put me under for a while because it was it was just my brain was just pushing on the inside of my skull, um, and now. Yeah, and, and and I'm sure I don't know. I'm sure I'm doing something wrong, but I don't know. I haven't figured it out. But that was like ten years ago, so I'm fine. But but now every time I get a headache, uh, I think that it's the beginning of of another two yeah. weeks of like blinding, excruciating pain, and it's this weird kind of like triggering triggering thing. So I th- though though my experience is different, I kind of know what you're talking about with like checking the pulse and whatever. Because as soon as I get a headache, I'm like, I'm like, oh crap, my brain swelling. I've got, you know, whatever, yeah. um, you know, going on. And so that's kind of an interesting thing. And, it, and it's awesome that you're able to find a way to kind of like take, take that source of anxiety and just like, I'm, I'm going to use this device to just, 
offload this and, and put it offload it. Yeah, that's yeah. exactly what it was. And, and I'm thankful that like it, heart rate is measurable, right? Yeah. I don't know how you'd measure brain swelling. Like I can't even imagine what that would even entail when it hurts or it's even, or it's even possible. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know. You know, but it's, it's I, terrible. Yeah, which is wild. And I, I think there's there's two things to that. Number one is like the heart rate's readable and trackable, right? Yeah. And that's a, that's a beautiful thing because there's so many pieces of technology that can help you with that. And I was able to kind of offload that stress to the device. That way, if it, I mean, who knows? Maybe it wasn't actually reading my heart rate, but I thought it was, right? And that was enough right. for my brain to be like, don't worry about it. But the, the second thing to that is like, and this goes for anybody and anything, like your body will tell you when you're making a mistake. Yeah. Right. And sometimes it'll be too late. Right. Where you've already gone past the point of no return. Or sometimes it'll be like right as you're on the cusp, you know, and sometimes it's anywhere in between that. But the point is, is like the more in tune you are with how you are normally versus how you are when you feel funny versus when you're anxious versus whatever, the more self-aware you are, the better off you'll be. And the, the hard part about that is that the flip side of that, it can very much very quickly put you in this trap of like, am I overanalyzing everything that's going on with myself? Sure. Right. And I fell into that. And that's kind of where the Apple watch picked up because I was checking the pulse every 10 seconds, you know, and everyone asked, you know, are you okay? Are you feeling funny? And the answer is always like, no, 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 I'm just, I'm, I'm keeping data for, you know, myself or whatever, which was bull crap. <laughs> but I, I didn't want to explain like, oh, I'm feeling nervous right now. You yeah. Know? I'm freaking or, myself or I'm, out. <laughs> right. And, and it was very, like a few people noticed, like my mom and a few close friends were like, mm, we know you, this is bullshit. Like you are lying right now. Yeah. You know, but it, it, I don't think I was ready to come to terms with that, you know? And then the yeah. Apple watch gave me that, that sense of security um, that was like, okay, but, but now I don't have to worry because this thing will do it for me. You know, cool. it'll worry. It'll handle it. But like I said, I think the cool thing with that is, it took that stress off, but I can't imagine, you know, but that's only because I was able to know, like, this is how my body reacts to these situations now. And it was a new thing. And I had to figure out how and where to navigate for the rest of eternity. Because the, the the shitty thing about AFib is the, what they say is, like, it doesn't, first of all, it doesn't go away, right? The only thing is it starts to happen more often. So that's that's the crappy part, right? And because it happened to me so young, it pretty much means, like, somewhere down the road, this is going to happen again. Right. And it may be worse. It may be the same or it may not happen. But the fact that you've had it once, it's like opening it like a cut. Right. You, you open a cut in like a really like a, a joint area, like in your, uh, you know, in your crease, your elbow or something. The yeah. chance of it reopening is very high. Right? right. It's right there because you have that cut in the first place. So I'm already attuned to like knowing like, all right, so a stroke could be in my future. Right. Because yeah. of this. Right. But on the same note, AFib itself is not life threatening. It's life annoying. Right, because it doesn't actually do anything to you. It's the other things that surround the environment you're in that could cause problems. Like AFib at, at a 70 year old is dangerous because it can cause clotting, right, and cause stroke. At 24, like your circular system or circulation system is pretty good. <laughs> like it's yeah. not a big concern. But it's that now there's this chance. Like there's this always like looming thing in the back of my head that's like mm, you could have this again, and it could be more severe. But there's just there's now I know like I'm a little more in tune like all right don't have four coffees a day you know and don't take on ten projects like you can you can be okay with one you yeah. know or whatever yeah and that's and that's kind of where that's kind of where I'm super interested and I, I don't want to keep you longer than you've got I I I I've got a lot more questions but um, yeah let's go okay I'm so ready. so so let me ask you this so I I'm a firm believer in uh, I'm a firm believer in like pushing hard. Um, but reasonably, right? But I, I, I think 
generally speaking, uh, and I definitely don't think this applies to you, but generally speaking, most people waste a ton of time, don't make things and kind of go through their life, you know, doing the bare minimum and, and being entertained by other things that people are creating. Um, the flip side of that is, you know, this kind of like, you know, take on extra stuff, do things for yourself, create things, um, you know, go, go make the world a better place. Um, and, and ever since your kind of talk, I've started to think like, you know what, there's a lot of good in that, but there's a dangerous level of excess that I think is, uh, you know, is, is bad almost equally or more so than somebody who just doesn't do anything that should be doing something. So the question I've got is you're still making things. You're still, you're still, you didn't, you didn't like change jobs to go do something, you know, where you could just punch a clock and, you know, like you're still in this creative career and you're still making things for yourself. Do, do you have like a set of rules? Do you have like a, do you have like a system? Do you have a, a kind of a feeling? Um, do you kind of play it by ear? But how is it that you're staying productive, staying creative, but balancing this kind of new way of, of thinking and doing? Yeah. Um, well, I think the before I even get to that, I think it's important to realize and I think acknowledge that like the two types of people you mentioned, the world needs both. Yeah. Right. They need the people who who have the potential that don't want to. Right. Because that empowers the folks that do. Right. And I don't mean that in like a lazy people need to exist kind of way. I mean it in like a it's OK not to do to take action all the time. Sure. Right. You can be okay passing a bunch of things up. If it's ultimately hurting yourself, I would argue you should probably, you know, look at that in a different way. But there's there's a niceness to like I'm trying to say this without sounding pretentious, but there's a niceness to to not knowing, right? To having a blind eye. Like there's a bliss there's a blissfulness to you know being at a beginner state of mind. Right. Right, because and, and, once you learn more and you know more, you kind of get hardened to things, and yeah. that often can lead to bad choices. What I'm what I'm talking about with that is not uh, is not everyone, but I'm talking about if you if you feel called to something, you know, for for lack of a better phrase, you know, if if you feel a pull to make something and you numb that and deaden that or ignore yes. that, I understand. You do universe is knocking. Open the door. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So, but to answer your second question, I think for me, I had to put a filter on my life. I had to to decide with work, let's just start there, right? I had to figure out number one is what I'm doing fulfilling me, right? And in some way, shape or form, because I don't think your day job has to be your dream job. I really don't. I'm a, I'm a believer of like, you can go to and clock in at a nine to five, get money, so that you can pay your bills and and live a, a decent life, and then let your outside of work stuff fulfill, you know that that itch that you have to scratch, and then maybe eventually, Absolutely. you can maybe make that your full time thing, but it's not required, right? Yeah, and I love I love that you agree that it's not required because I hate the idea that money validates your art. Absolutely, um, mon- and money on top is- of that, not everyone should. 
Go ahead. Sorry. No, money is just a thing. Money is money is this money is this giant group delusion that we've all agreed has something. Mm-hmm. And what all it represents is is what you were talking about earlier is the value of exchange. And that exchange doesn't have to be money. It's it's the yeah. easiest to measure. Um, but I mean, if you're producing something and it makes you feel better about your life, that's, that's an exchange of value with you and, you know, the universe, you know, or you and, 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 and those that are enjoying your work or whatever it is, just because you're not making $50,000 a year doing that thing doesn't invalidate that thing. Um, absolutely. You can make money doing a million things that you probably don't want to do. Right. Right. If you want to be an artist, fantastic. You have to clean toilets to do it. Great. Guess what? Suck it up. Right. That's, that's <laughs> that, you know, if you're an accountant who loves to draw and you're really good at accounting and that's what you're getting paid to do. So what? You don't have to quit your job and open a freelance business. Yeah. That's not the right thing for some people. It is, but it's not a one, a one-stop fix all. And that's part of my, one of my biggest issues with like the, some of the motivational speakers, the, the conference market is like, all these glamorous slide decks of here's all these fancy clients I did work for. And here's all this magical work I was able to produce outside of the day job and da, 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 da. And then, you know, we remember that like part of the reason those people are here is because they have to show their work more than the average full timer. Right. Right. Because they have to be out there and active or they get run over by those who are. Right. And I, and I was, I was talking to um, some other friends uh, last week about like, they're like, well, why, why do you think the, the speakers, you know, a lot of speakers in general are, are of that mindset and it's not like in-house people on the stage. And my gut response was because I think they have more time than the in-house folks. Like they can choose to order their day in a way that's like, I'm going to spend the first two hours doing this and the next two hours doing this and the next two hours doing this. We're like, when you, punch in, punch out, so to speak, even if it's like a remote job or whatever, like you have a set of tasks that's often driven by business decisions that are somewhat and sometimes out of your control, yeah. right? So you have to execute. But, and then the interesting part to that is like when, when the conferences come knocking and it's like, oh, okay, who's got presentations ready? It's the people who've had time to work on them. Yeah. So it's the freelancers, right? Those who've been able to structure their schedule in a way that they, that works best for them, but it's not always the right path for everyone. Right. right. So, so that's, that's a tangent, but yeah, well, and, and, and real know, quick, a good example of this good friend of mine, uh, was an artist and, uh, was also just one of the most intelligent people I know. And, uh, she decided to go to law school, you know, graduated like super high, making tons of money. Um, and because she chose a day job that allows her, um, you know, the freedom, her watercolor has like taken off. And she refuses to monetize it. Refuses. She's that doesn't make her any less of an artist or anything. And to boot, she's a phenomenal uh, international lawyer, you know. And and uh, so that that idea that you know because it's a it's a hobby, it's less than is 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 garbage. Anyway, sorry. So this is a tangent, but I want to I want to get to where you're going. Um, what's your system? What's your what's your feeling? What's your gut say? Yeah. With so stuff? I think. The- yeah, the first thing is like knowing when it's time to have an exit strategy, right? Um, and that could be with uh, an employer, that could be with a friendship, that can be with a, a project you're on, that could be with a, a hobby or, or a habit that you're in, right? Either way, I, I'm big on not just pulling the plug, right? You can't just rip out. It just doesn't work. Number one, you burn bridges. Right. Um, and oftentimes ones you will definitely need in the future or you don't know that you need in the future. 
right? Uh, two, it's it's the t- most toxic way to end anything, right? For yourself even, because you don't give yourself time to process. And three, there's nothing better than a plan that's well executed, right? Whether it's changing jobs or 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 kind of backing off of a friendship that's just not, you know, a positive one or a relationship for that matter. Um, you know, or it's like, you know, if I come home every day and I watch TV is the first thing I do, like, that's a bad habit. I should maybe go outside. I should walk the dog. I should go to the gym, whatever it is, you know, slow, figuring out a way with a duration set, like a set of time to say, okay, I'm going to do this by this date. And here's how I'm going to do it. Even if you don't know if it's going to work, just putting yourself through that motion gives your brain a chance to go, okay, first of all, this is possible. Second of all, here's how I'm going to do it. It's not like a ripping the bandaid off and all of a sudden everything's changed and your life's been upside down. Like you have the, the time to process, here's how I get from point A to point B to point C to eventually get to, to Q or whatever it is you're, you're, you're going for. So exit strategy, right? And it's okay for that exit strategy to fail. It's also okay for you to change your mind, right? So long as you're not always going back to the toxic behavior that you were trying to leave in the first place. Um and I say all that knowing that that's often the hardest thing to address. Yeah. Right. When you're like, what do I need to fix? What do I need to fix? Like the first thing for me wasn't like, oh, I should maybe change jobs. Like that wasn't the first thing that came to mind. You know, but I got there eventually. I was like, okay, well, I've already tweaked this. I've tried to tweak this. Like maybe it is the job that, 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 you know, needs to change. Maybe it is the atmosphere. Maybe it's whatever it is, you know. And for me at the time, it happened to be it happened to be my job. You know, a lot of great people work at, at the place I was working. But for me, it was just – I outlived my my the, the time the universe wanted me there, you know, and it was time to move on. And that was the first step for me in changing my lifestyle because that was the bulk of our time is spent at the workplace, right? Right, generally, um, and that oftentimes will bleed into the way you make decisions, the way you go and do things outside of the workplace. What not even just talking about like your your hours spent. I mean like your thought process, right? Like you start getting into the habits of like if you're eating, you're drinking, you know crappy coffee every day at work, you start buying crappy coffee at home. You know what I mean? Like it's just a thing that happens because it's habitual. And it's a self-identification thing. I mean, you meet someone, um, you know, and one of the ways that we define ourselves to other people is what we do for a living. I'm a, this, you know, I work here, you know, and it's, so it's a huge, it's a huge part of our life and and including Mm -hmm. the way that we think about ourselves. Absolutely. And then, you know, you've got, coworkers and managers and whatever that may or may not be, you know, serving their interests, your interests, whatever it is. And so the first place is is always now when when I think, okay, what's my environment, right? My environment is my workplace. It's my personal life at home that does not include other people. And then it's that personal life that includes other people, right? It's those three things. And then the fourth often that creeps in is like, what are you doing that may or may not be of interest to you that you'd like to try doing more of? Like for me, it was fishing. Like, I have so much fishing gear, it's ridiculous. Like, I can literally, like, staff an army because I've always bought the new thing or, you know, someone gave me something that they were using or whatever. And I'm, generally speaking, a pretty bad fisherman. Like, I'm awful. But I enjoy it, right? And I like, it's just relaxing, like, being by the water. Like, it's just something I like doing. Um, and I, like, try to make it a goal. Like, like I bought a kayak three years ago, and it's literally sat underneath the crawl space in my house for two years untouched. Uh-huh. You know, I spent $900 on this thing because I was like, oh, I'm going to get the best one. It's going to be great. You know, and I used it four times and then it sits there. Uh-huh. And that's because I haven't given myself like permission or I had in the past to be like, no, you're not going to go home and work on this project that has no purpose. You're going to go and just like 
relax a little bit and take that kayak out or go fishing or whatever. So I use fishing as an example because that's it's the thing. It's the unattainable for me in a lot of ways. And I get to go every once in a while, but I should be going more. And the reason I should be going more is because it's relaxing for me. Yeah. Right. For some reason, like going through the motions of putting crap on a hook and throwing it out there in hopes of a fish biting it is like enough for my brain to wind down. Yeah. And I, and I, and I hope that everyone's able to find an activity or people or whatever that gives them that same kind of ritual that they can lean on when they need it. Because it's, it's a, you know, if fishing, the fact that this fishing is trivial, it's the fact of what it does to my mental space. That's important. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and it, and, and I have fished for survival, but never fished for entertainment <laughs> before. Um, but, uh, but it has all the it has all the markers of an activity that that really allows you to go into uh, what neurologists call the default mode network, which is that that state of restful wakefulness that's so important because it's super boring. Um, you know, it's not programmed time. There's nothing there like trying to influence the way that you're feeling through music or visuals or whatever. Um, and then it's it's a mundane task that doesn't really take a lot of high processing cognitive power. Um, and so that totally makes sense. Um, for me, it's inking because, uh, I don't need to think a lot about the inking. I've made, I've done a lot of the problem solving in the penciling stage. Um, you know, and, and so it's kind of, it's kind of along those same lines. Um, but what inking doesn't have that fishing does have is, um, is like being outside, you know, and, and being in the sun and in the wind and, you know, the change of the smells and, and sights and sounds and everything. Um, so yeah, so that's awesome. That's yeah. great. And I, I, I think it's funny you bring up inking cause that, that used to be my ritual. Uh-huh. Right. And then I ended up turning it into something that it didn't need to be. Right. And I think that was, for me, it was tangentially the fact that it was too correlated to my work. Right. And given I've never been an ever, I've never truly called myself an illustrator, you know, or, or, or a comic artist. I've never done comics. I like doing some new hand lettering stuff. That's fine. I like monoline illustration, but most of it's computer based. So I've been trying to get back to the whole pen and paper thing, but you know, I would keep sketchbooks and I, I would end up putting too much pressure on myself that the ink wasn't laying right. Right. Or it, was, it became, instead of relaxing, it became a task that I had to finish. Right. So I personally, I needed to separate the creative work from the thing I was doing. And when you take that out, I mean, arguably you can be creative with the knots you're tying on your fishing line, but there's nothing correlated between the two. Sure. Right. And the biggest kicker for me is like, I'm, I think control freaks a strong word. I like to consider myself well prepared, right? Like to think through scenarios before I get to them. I like to make sure that there's an exit strategy that, that I have where I show up to, to give a presentation or talk to somebody. Like I know what I'm going into, you know, I like to make sure things are defined, but fishing is completely out of everyone's control. Like there could be no fish out. <laughs> right. You know, the weather could have, could have decided that they're going to sleep longer. Like you have zero control over any of that. And again, you can influence it a little bit, like with the type of bait you use or whatever, but realistically, like you're above the water. You have no idea what's going on down there at any time. Yeah. You know, you don't even know if the lure you're using is doing the right action or whatever. And to me, there's like a weird, like it makes me a little anxious cause I don't know, but in the same part, it like, relaxes me because it's like it's completely out of my control like i'm yeah. just gonna let it happen and that's a weird feeling for someone like me who's like very much like okay i like to work in a box because i can control what's inside the box and extraneous you know conditions don't make me nervous but i like to be able to plan for them in some way shape or form you know and, and fishing is the complete opposite of that yeah okay i'm gonna rescind inking and <laughs> i'm gonna say i'm gonna say uh and this is gonna be weird 
I'm going to say motorcycles and yogurt. That's my, that's my that go-to. Fantastic. So I, I, and I'm realizing this as a, as I'm listening to you describe this, um, I will, I will often several times a week, um, hop on my bike, go in the most random route. And then on the way back, grab some frozen yogurt. That's my, that's my thing for that's, that's, that's my fishing. That's what it is. Okay. So yeah, yeah it's not, there you go. though, though, though yeah. I do, though I do enjoy inky, but I think, I think and and that's great. And that, there's a, there's a quote that's in my, my talk and I'm, I feel dumb for not remembering who said it right now, but, um, there's, uh, it's a meditation practice uh, instructor, kind of like a, a neurologist of sorts who says that like meditation is not sitting with your legs crossed, you know, saying "Om" until, you know, everything melts away. It's finding something of repetitive nature that brings you joy that you can replicate in sequence and that everyone should find some kind of meditative practice, albeit karaoke or riding motorcycles or fishing that you can, that you know, after a certain series of actions, bring some sort of like, like aha moment for you and yeah. that they should lean heavily into that because that's the thing that will allow your brain to go. I have time to process now because it's always moving, right? you never, your brain's never off. I don't care what right. anyone says and whether you're high or, you know, or, or, or wasted or, or, or sober, it doesn't matter. Like there's not a moment where your brain's not doing something functional, right? Because often drugs and stuff are used as an escape to, to, to turn that off. I don't think there's a moment when you're not processing information. But you can give your brain an extra power-up by not giving it something to focus on in the forefront. Yeah, right? and they've, and and they've, done, be, they've done brainwave yeah. studies. Um, your brain goes into hyperactivity um, during downtime. And so yes. the, it, it'll like in, in a normal, in a normal problem solving mode, let's say that that's, you know, whatever that's stasis when you're being entertained, you actually have less brain function than, than you do than problem solving. Right. Which makes sense. You're not having to yep. like think through things. It's being thought for you. But if you go into a state of boredom, um, your brain actually begins to recount, all kinds of all kinds of things, but it gives you it, it, it increases your creativity, it increases your empathy with other people, it increases your long term memory, and it increases your ability to make um, what they call the rich connection network, um, the ability to learn new things because you have the time to connect previously unrelated ideas together into this mesh so that when a new idea comes in or a new idea is unconnected, um, it's easier to connect it to the mesh of what you've got without that. Um, they, there, there's a lot of like, um, people that are theorizing at this point and, and they don't have studies to back this up. Um, but there are a lot of people that are theorizing that, that mental degeneration later on in life is due to not enough time to process things in this, in this kind of downtime and not getting enough sleep. So Alzheimer's and stuff like that. If you can imagine like taking an engine and you run it at like redline RPMs, like 24 hours a day. You know, um, that's, that's what a lot of us do to our brains. If we don't yeah. stop and relax and do something that allows, you know, what that meditation guy was saying, you know, this kind of repetitive downtime process where you can, where you can kind of, you know, do all of those things. And, and it's like, if you have a, if you have a fight with somebody or whatever, and you walk away and you don't immediately put earbuds in or something, what, what do you do with that? You replay that event, that, that conversation in your mind, and you always come up with the perfect thing to say. It's because your brain has the time to process those events. And what it's trying to do is it's trying to decide 
how am I going to solve this problem in the future? And if you never stop to yep. do that type of thing, um, then it's just like running that running that engine at, at, at full RPM like all the time. It's just yeah, going to break I call down. them poop thoughts. I call them poop thoughts. It's that moment like why do you always have the best ideas when you're taking a poop, right? When you have no access to write it down, you're, you're supposed to not have your phone on you, right? Or even in the shower. When, yeah. you're, when you're not near technology, when you're not near – it's like your brain has a moment to breathe, yeah, like you're giving it a chance to just do nothing because you're doing some sort of remedial task that you know the order of operations and you can literally do it blindly. And it's like you need to people need to lean in and embrace the idea of like poop thoughts are good. Like you want them all the time. Like you yeah. want to be able to to take a break, let your brain do what it needs to do. Like there's, there's immense value in even like setting an alarm clock, you know, or, or a timer on your phone at 2 p.m. every day at the work day. Like you get up off your desk, you go walk around the building, you come back inside. Right, it's like yeah. a three-minute, five-minute thing, but it gives your brain a chance to turn off, process, and then get back into gear. It's like going into idle. You know, give it a minute to breathe. Yeah, and it's it's a magical difference when you can be able to integrate even moments of, of, and then, you know, arguably you could say those are moments of meditation. I mean, there's an app called Headspace that I used for a very uh, short amount of time after my diagnosis because they they told me meditation would help me kind of get into this flow of like breathing and getting into a thing. And I was like, I'm not going to be sitting, you know, with my legs crossed every morning for 30 minutes, like going into some trance. Like that's not realistic. And they were like, okay, Taylor, you're, you're completely like over, you know, analyzing this thing. Number one, number two, you're adding the filter of like what movies and stuff have shown you meditation is like, just try the app. We promise it's a whole different thing. And what the app begins, it's like, all right, we're gonna do this for two minutes. And I was like, two minutes. What's that can do for anybody? And it starts, it's like two minutes. Then after week one, it's three minutes. And after week two, it's five minutes. And then you realize a month later, you're doing 20 minute meditations. Yeah. Like it's nothing, you know, and you just get yourself, you work into it. You know, it doesn't have to be this thing where you're like, all right, so tomorrow for in perpetuity, I'm going to be, I'm going to meditate 20 minutes a day and I'm going to ter- say no to all my projects I don't want to do. And I'm going to tell my boss to like shove it and I'm going to stop taking projects I don't want to. Like you can't just do that. It's yeah. not a thing. Right. It's a process. Yeah, and and I'll, I'll if you think two minutes is a short amount of time, uh, put your phone in your pocket, try to sit there for two minutes, and yep. see how many times in a two minutes you reach for your phone. It's it's and don't use your phone to track that time. Yeah, don't use your phone to track it, but just sit there with yourself, with your thoughts, with nothing yep. going on. That's that's tough. Okay, so here's the scenario because I'm I'm super curious about this. Let's go hit it. Let's say that you've got, let's say that you've got, cause this, this happens to me and I'm sure it happens to you all the time. An idea comes to you for a project. It's something you're super excited about. Maybe it's another series of stickers, you know, maybe it's an animation that you want to try, maybe, you know, so whatever, whatever it is. And, and it, and it's, it's obviously it's not fully formed, but it's, it's formed enough to where you can see, you know, like kind of the end, you know, and you can see how it goes. Mm-hmm. How do you keep that healthy? for you what because you've mentioned several times that you've taken things and then and then you've you've turned it toxic whether you, whether you tried to monetize it and then you had to track it or whether it becomes something that you know becomes too stressful or something so this perfect idea this this great thing it's it's definitely what you want to spend some of your free time doing what are the governors that you stick on that situation so that it doesn't become you know so that your dream doesn't turn into a nightmare yeah so the single best thing I ever did, and I can actually show you. I started carrying this little tiny thing. Okay. And all, all this is is a pen, 
with a notebook inside. Yeah. Right? And anytime I have, by the way, shout out to uh, Cameron. That's his bomb sticker. It's super awesome. Awesome. Anyway, um, what I started doing is anytime I have one of these ideas, number one, this this book comes with me 24 hours a day. It's always in my pocket. It's small. It's it's in this leather case so the, the, the paper doesn't, like, fall apart. The pen is with it, and that was the most important thing to me because I never carry a pen. Right. Right? And so anytime these, like, random ideas come up, I just I open a page, I write down whatever it is, and on the first page of that notebook is an index. It's just 1 through 48. There's 48 pages in this book, it happens to be. And I write down, you know, uh, idea about sticker, you know, for later. And I just put it in there because if I can get the idea out of my head and onto something physical that I can check later, I've created a process for myself where I consider that enough. Right? It's logged somewhere. That way I won't forget it. Because my biggest thing is, like, I'm going to forget. Like, if I don't do this now, if I don't work on this thing now, I'm not going to remember. You know, and then in a week or so, if it's still eating at me, then it's it's a sign of, like, maybe you should work on that. Okay. You know, maybe that's something you should actually flush out a little bit more. But there's plenty of stuff that I'll be like, this is the coolest idea ever. I should do this right now. And I'll write it down. And then I'll close the book. And then, like, in six months when I finish the book and I got to look at it, you know, get a new one, I'll flip back and be like, oh, man, I thought that was going to be a good idea. Oof, glad I didn't spend time on that. Or I'll be like, oh, that's actually kind of cool. And that ties into this other project I actually worked on two months later. And that was just the my brain trying to process through the idea in its rawest stage, you know, and there's some tangential relation. So it's given me this log of like things. And what I start to do is I, I pretty much go through one and they're just, these happen to be field notes. Um, you know, the Aaron Draplin's uh, field notes books. And I use the ones that are uh, the dot lined because you can, you can make notes, you can draw, you can do all the things inside without having to worry about lines and whatever. But what I've started to do is I pretty much run through one book in three months mm-hmm. is generally my, my duration. Um, and when I'm done with it, I'll scan it in and I'll save it to my iCloud space so that I can access it on my phone. So if there's ever a time where I'm like, mm, I can't remember that idea, but I remember it's in this book. Like I could flip back to my index pages and be like, ah, that's where it is. And I'll go and jump in. Or like if I'm at, you know, a creative mornings talk or in a client call or whatever, all that stuff goes in the same notebook. Everything's in one place. And that way I can jump back when I need to, to this index page, find what I need, repull the idea, get myself back into the headspace and do whatever I needed to do. But the point is, is that, that manual, um, recording of whatever it is onto this piece of paper is enough for my brain to say, you've done work on this. You can let it go because you've captured all you need to capture. And sometimes like it's one line, sometimes it's three pages of notes. You know, there's, there's not a, I don't set myself a limit in that respect, you know, but I'll get everything out. I need to, you know, that I, that I, that to get me to the next step. Like there was a, a project that I, I got an email from a, 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 a couple guys that often bring me in to do some brand work for their clients. And they were like, hey, we have this idea. Here's the company name. Like, they're ready to go. You know, what's your schedule like? And my first response was, I can't do it in the timeline you want. You know, how about extending it later? Are you open to that? Send it back. They never, they didn't respond, you know, in the in the, the first couple of days. But I had an idea in my head based on what they told me, right? Mm-hmm. So I jotted it out. I even doodled some mock-ups of the, of the aesthetic that I, you know, would have maybe executed on later. Closed the book. Ideas logged. Right. They email me a, a week and a half later. Hey, so sorry. Project took a different different spin. We don't need it right now. It might be in six months, whatever it is. And I was like, cool. No harm, no foul. Right. We didn't get in too deep. But and, you know, I was able to get the idea down, number one, without promising something to a client that I couldn't deliver on. But two, it was documented in a way that I knew I can go back and pick up where I left off so that I wouldn't lose the trend, the train of thought, but also that I wouldn't have to start from scratch. 
Yeah. You know, and that's the thing with me is like, I'm often like my brain's in a million different directions at all times. And I need a way to record whatever's going on so that I don't feel like I'm starting over all the time. And that's what this gives me the ability to do. Yeah, that's awesome. So part of, part of that is cataloging it. Let's mm-hmm. say that you, you catalog it, you come, you come to it, you know, it's, it's three weeks later or something and, you, and you're still, you're still stoked about it. So you jump into that project. How do you keep that project from going toxic? It's hard. It's hard. Um, what I've tried to do, so uh, I'm, I'm a single guy, so I don't have kids or, or a wife um, or anything like that. But the, what I'm able to do is I've, I've designated Sundays as like my my flex day. Let's, let's just call it. Um, where if I have a client project that I need to finish up, like Sunday's the day. Like I just try not to make plans with friends or, or obligations of any kind on Sundays because that's my catch-up day. So if I need to work on something that's that's I have an obligation for or a promise I made, I could do it then. If I really need to feel like I need to flush something out a little further, I can spend Sunday doing it and not feel guilty about pushing off something else. Mm-hmm. And that took a while to kind of make sure that worked. And I, it's, I know it's not possible for everybody, but if you can pick a duration of time consistently, it could be like Tuesdays from 5 to 9 p.m. Like it doesn't have to be a whole day or a Sunday or whatever, but pick a duration of time where you can process through that information, right? Whether it's a project, whether whatever, and you time box it, you know, all right, I'm giving myself five hours to get as far as I can on this. And then I close the computer or I close the sketchbook or I turn off whatever, you know, give yourself that constraint because number one, you'll get yourself into that that fight or flight thing, right? So maybe even into a flow state of thinking, which is good, but you're giving yourself a constraint where you know you're going to stop, right? And you can't touch this thing again until you come back to it next week or the next time you, you set. And it's hard, right? It's hard to do. But once you get into the habit of doing that, you learn to tell yourself no, which is almost as important as saying no to other people right? Or other clients or, or jobs or bosses or whatever. And so what I've been able to do is like, I know that Sundays are my day, right? So today, right? So I, I did a bunch of stuff today. I'm on this podcast like now, like, and there's some things on my checklist that I wanted to get done today that I just, I couldn't get to. So they get bumped to next Sunday, you know, or if I have a day off this week or something where I know I have some free time, but I've gotten to the, the habit of just being okay with that because I know that like, if I want to do this sticker for something, right? If there's, unless there's like, an event I'm trying to make it for that needs to be done quicker. Like another week is not going to make that much of a difference, but it will make a difference to my brain, right? It'll give me the time to plan accordingly. It's not going to hurt the project anymore. People won't buy it less because I put it out next week instead of this week. Like that's not going to make a difference Yeah. in the, in the reality, you know, but like I said, there's, it's, it's for a deadline. That's a different story. You know, sometimes you're going to move things around, but I try not to do that to myself anymore, especially when it's stuff that's outside of, the day job or what's really like if, if I'm having to sacrifice, you know, like for example, there's, um, there's a brewery around the corner from my house that does social bike rides on Wednesday where people all go out and they do this bike ride and they come back and have pizza and beer. And I've started to like, like I'm going to start leaving Wednesdays open. You know, I'm going to try to, so I can make that bike ride. Cause number one, it gets me out of the house. I'm exercising, I'm meeting new people, but I'm also not doing something that's bound me to a machine. Yeah. You know, I spend my, my, well, arguably you can say a bike's a machine, but a computer, right? I spend eight to 10 hours a day at in my day job staring in front of a screen, whether it be typing email, doing stuff in, in a software, whatever. And then the hours I spend at home checking other email or watching videos or whatever. So if I can pre-schedule in times like that where I can block off parts of my schedule to do things that aren't that I'm trying to lean into them. And the hard part, like you said, is the toxicity of it. Like there's like last week I tried, I was like, I'm not gonna do any freelance work. I'm going to try and like have social plans every day of the week. 
like after work, whether that be dinner or just hanging out or whatever. And like the weekend came by and my Sunday, you know, day came and I was like, this was awful. Like the whole point of this was to like get out and be out with people again, but I am pooped. Like, I don't want to talk to people. Like I, you know, I was clearly not a hundred percent present when I was with these people because I was thinking about the other thing I had to do or the other errand I forgot to run or whatever it was. And I realized like it's, it was too much. Right. But the beautiful thing about life, right, is that it, it can change. Right. You can tweak that. Like, so now I know, okay, maybe four nights, if I'm going to do that again, like four nights a week is, is fine. It doesn't need to be all five, right? Plus right. the weekend. Like, one of those days should be for me. Yeah. You know, so it's, it's just being able to take that step back and go, okay, maybe I'm doing this wrong. Even if I'm doing it right, like, you need to be your own devil's advocate to go, but what if you didn't do that? Right. Or what if you waited? What would happen? What's the worst that could happen? You know, and sometimes that worst thing is like, oh, but the the project will fail. And it's like, really? Are you just jumping like 30 steps ahead in what the worst thing is? Yeah. Right? Just just to make yourself feel like you have to do it. And that's that was my problem, too, is it's like, well, if I don't do this now, it will never happen again. And it's and, like, really, I, Taylor, you can make a sticker. I love, I love that question. I use that question all the time because um, – in, in very few situations in, in today's day and age is the worst possible outcome like death or dismemberment or what it's out. It's always something that like when you step back, it's like, that's not the end of the world, you know? And, yep. uh, and so worst case scenario, you know, this takes a week longer, worst case scenario, you know, nobody looks at this thing, worst case scenario, you know, whatever. But it's usually, it's usually something that's like, Oh, well, I mean, if that's the worst case scenario, then I don't know why I feel this way about it. You know, right. um, well, we so can it, go a level deeper, like even with employers, yeah. right? Most. So first of all, if you work for yourself or you're talking about freelance stuff, you should be baking in time to your schedule when you make these bids and make these contracts for downtime, yep. right? Your brain cannot work a hundred percent of the time. Right. You need to add an extra week, an extra few days, whatever it is to your deadline to give yourself time for, I don't know, getting sick or your dog needing to go to the hospital, or your mom needing you for something, or a sibling, or a friend, or whatever. Stuff you can't control. So that's kind of portion one. Portion two is a good manager or, or a good boss is someone you can come to and go, hey, I'm really overwhelmed right now. Is there any way that we can make this a little bit flexible? Yeah. Right? Maybe give me an extra day. Or maybe extend the deadline instead of at noon, it's due at 5 p.m. And most of the time, and I, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to fudge this a little bit, but like, they can move that, right? Now, sometimes they can't, right? Especially if it's your fault and you just continue to slack off, and it's it's a you know a seem you know a bunch of things that caused this problem. But most of the time, those kinds of things have some level of flexibility, right? So if something is really rendering you useless because you're so stressed about it. That's more toxic than you finishing it on time, right? But you have to know when to raise the flag. Right. You don't go an hour before the deadline. Hey, I really wish we had more time. You know, the day before that may leave some flexibility. And if you're doing that with your employer, because I've, I've been an art director in this situation and I, I hated I hated two different types of employees. The one type of employee that I hated was the person who was just lazy, right? And they, I just had, I called them the voice activated designer where I had to go over there and tell them, I need you to do this now. I need you to do this now. I need you to do this now. That drives me nuts because I want somebody who's proactive, problem solving. They, they see the team goal, you know, and they pitch in and they come to me with stuff and saying, Hey, I noticed that this is something that I could do, right? So the whole, the whole voice activated thing drives me nuts. The other side of the equation that drives me nuts is the person who says yes to 
to everything and doesn't communicate their boundaries to me because as, as the, the lead in that team, um, I'm going to keep giving the team stuff until not because I'm trying to break them, but because I don't know where everybody's envelope is and I've got to get stuff done. And so I'm managing, you know, 40 different things. And so I don't have, I don't have the time or even the ability, you know, to empathize with each person's situation. So I just say, I need you to do this. Can you do this? Can you do that? And the person who says yes to the point of burnout, they drive me nuts. Cause it's like, dude, I don't want to do that to you. Why don't you just come to me and say, um, you know, actually I've got, I've got these, these 12 projects that I need to do, you know, in the next three months. And so, and, and this is what I would teach people to do. Like, tell me, prioritize this for me. If I take this on, which, which two of these things do you want to take off my plate? And, and that question to a manager, um, to a good manager, I'll say this, um, is great. I love that question because then I can reassess and say, I'm so glad that you brought these things up. I forgot that you were even working on this thing, which doesn't matter anymore. So let's, let's ditch that. Let's get rid of that. This, this deadline is moved. So let's worry about that next month. Um, you know, the time that I've done this where I was in a bad management situation, you know, I was told, I was told, well, that's unacceptable. And I said, well, what's unacceptable? Uh, you know, that, that you don't have enough time to do this. And I said, well, there is a finite amount of time that I have in any given day. And I'm just telling you that you have to make a choice of priority. Um, and that was, that was one of the red flags where I was like, this is not a long-term situation for me. I need to get out of this. If they don't respect like the laws of physics, you know, the laws right. of time and space, you know, that's, well, that's I think that the challenge there, is, I'm sure you can relate to is like, sometimes that's, it takes a while to get to the point where you're comfortable enough to raise the white flag. Yeah. Right. And I think I learned that the very, the hardest way, you know, because I was always the, the Superman syndrome person. Like if, if, right. if I don't do it, no one else will. Right. Right. And that may have, at the time it was because I was the only designer in, in, at that office. Right. I was like, so if, if I miss my deadline, everything falls because I'm the only one that can do the work. Yeah. Right here. So it, it's, that's toxic in itself, but it takes a, an enormous amount of strength to be able to admit that you fucked, oh, you messed up yeah. or that you're in a situation where like you took on too much, right? right? Or you accepted too much from an employer that's, that's putting too much pressure on you. Cause right? it feels like weakness. It feels like you're yes. admitting vulnerability when in actuality, yep. what you're doing is accurately describing a factual situation. Exactly. And it's even worse when you're on a team and it feels like you're underperforming compared to your peers. Right. But what you have to remember is like, as an individual, your manager if they're a good manager, knows your strengths, knows the other team member's strengths, and knows that no two people are alike, right? There's going to be people that can churn out work like crazy. And there's going to be people that need a little more time to process or or longer in the visioning stage or whatever. And both of those types of people are perfectly fine to exist. It gets a little sticky when you've got deadlines, right? And that some things need to happen faster. But like a good manager will plan ahead for that. You know, they'll put the, the person takes a little longer on it earlier or whatever, but being able to know how you are as a person and then also be willing to be flexible, right? Just because you know, you take longer envisioning doesn't mean you should be like, you know what? F everyone else. I take longer. That's just how it's going to be. Right. It's like, no, like you need to be flexible. Also, you can learn to be more efficient if you want it to. Right. Yeah, and, but and the there, hardest, and there are times and projects where, there's built-in time for research and exploration and other times where there's 
you know, there's less of that. Um, we've, we've got a comment in the chat from Bold Line Design, um, who I believe is Matt that I met at Creative South, um, saying building in time for flexibility is a great point, especially if everything relies on you to get it done. And this is really interesting, whether you're kind of like the media person in your company or whether you're like a freelancer or whatever. If you are, if you are mission critical to that thing, Oftentimes, I think we make ourselves feel like this when it isn't the case. But if you are the the producer of that thing and you don't build in room for error, what you're actually doing um, is you are setting up a guaranteed situation where it is a domino effect of stress yes. that will compound because life happens. And it's fascinating to watch this. The most, I mean, if you think of Batman, right? Everybody, the way the way that people like to write Batman, where he's got a contingency plan for everything or whatever, um, that that's a fictional character that doesn't exist. In reality, you can't um, plan for everything. You can't plan for every contingency because the world is absurd. It's random. All kinds of stuff happens. You don't know whether you're going to be in, in tornado row and 300 tornadoes hit, you know, back to back to back in like a couple of weeks or something. I, you know, there or normal stuff that isn't like acts of God. You take on stuff like this happened to me uh, two weeks ago. I was in the middle of a project and all of a sudden um, my computer needed to update software for six hours. Mm -hmm. Well, I didn't plan on that. I didn't like, you know, or whatever, or, you know, your, your, whatever happens, if you don't build in that little bit of a cushion, um, it's, it is a hundred percent guaranteed to compound and it might not be a huge deal on the first project or the second project. But if you lose a little bit on each thing and you have no air, no room for error, um, then by the time you get to that fifth, sixth, seventh, whatever task project thing that you're doing, um, it has now spiraled out of control. You're operating on, you know, working 90 hours a week and it's super crazy. Um, and so I, I love that you say that because it's really hard for us to do because it feels like admitting weakness. And I, I just did this the other day where I had a buddy call me up uh, for a charity I did. And if you're looking at my stuff on Instagram, it's the giraffe logo that I just finished. But um, he called me up and he said, hey, when can you get this done? And I'm thinking, I don't know, I could I could probably knock this out in like six hours. And before I said that, like that little warning in my brain, because I've done this enough, said, give yourself a few days to do this. You know, and so so I said, Well, what's your deadline? Let's talk. instead of just immediately saying, I'm fast, I'm good, look at how amazing I am, I can do this quickly. I just went to him and said, um, I said, Well, you 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 tell me when do you actually need this? And then, and it wasn't, he didn't need it for a couple of weeks. And so I was like, well, great. I can definitely get it to you within a week. And that, and that was, I think there, four there's days another filter. On that. Sorry, yeah, go ahead. There's a filter on that where, and this is, we can go on a whole tangent on this. But this is why I don't like hourly billing. Yeah. But you, by over committing, you punish yourself for efficiency. Right. Right. You start to do more in shorter time and you're not giving yourself that brain power to process, right? You may be able to get that done in six hours, but there's no reason you should have to, right? Yeah. And that's the same thing with, with hourly billing. And you know, and you talk about the, with project tracking, whether you're at an agency, whether you're, you're freelance, hourly billing, in my perspective, is like someone always gets screwed. It might be you or the client. Either they're going to pay way too much for work that they didn't – like work you didn't do or you're going to get – punished for working fast. Right. right? No, it, so, it incentivizes the exact wrong thing for both parties. Exactly. 
Exactly. And there are some things that should be built out, like production work, right? It's the amount of time it takes you to literally hit export and do the thing. But if you're talking about like ideation, right. uh, conceptual, like that stuff can't be time boxed. Right. right? Because what and about, the, what hard about the last 20 years that it exactly. took me to get to this point today? Exactly. And the hard part is like, how do you tell that, especially to a non-design oriented manager, right? You, the, the hard thing is like the creative process and without getting too fluffy, like it's not a streamline, right? right. It's going to come up and down. It's ideas are going to pop out of nowhere and you're going to watch a TV show and you're going to get another idea or you're going to walk in the park and all of a sudden solve the problem. Like it's not a measurable quantifiable thing. And that's what makes it kind of magical. But in the same note, it makes it very hard to plan. Right. So you can, you can almost say like, yeah, it'll take, we're going to take an, a week to do the vision work on this, on this project when it may take you 40 minutes to actually get to the idea you need to be at, but it doesn't matter. Like you need to bake in that time because like you said, there's all these weird events that could happen anywhere in between, but guess what? Even if you arrive at the, su- the solution in that first 40 minutes, that means you get the rest of that time to, to, to continue to challenge your assumptions, right? Yeah. Harden the work that you've decided on. Make sure the decision you made is the right one. And that's, that's invaluable in the grand scheme of the project because that means when your employer, the client, whatever, comes at you with the question of, oh, why'd you make that choice? The answer is not like, oh, it's because I like purple. It's right. because purple is part of your brain palette and it evokes these emotions and yada, 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 yada. You have answers to the questions. Yeah. And I went down several roads that didn't work out and I had time to experiment. And so I know that this exactly. is the best solution <laughs> because I tried exactly. some others. Yeah, I love that. Well, we're coming up. We're coming up on. Uh, we're coming up on uh, almost an hour and forty minutes. So I, I think we've been going oh, wow. for really well. Yeah. So, uh, so let me uh, let me let me let me just. I want to mention some things in the chat, and then I'll, I have one more question for you. Sure. Um, so Victor's saying, um, I went through a rough experience a few years back when my mom was getting progressively. Uh, more ill, and that affected me and my job. I was overstressed, and they ended up losing my job. But I'm doing better now, and so it's it's awesome that he's he's doing better now. But I think yeah. this idea of, um, you know, like recognizing that we are not machines is is super important because stress is is a reality. It it, it exists. Um, and then Matt jumped back in and said, pricing products. Uh, projects is challenging um, with flexibility in mind, especially if the industry is known for lower pricing and super fast turnaround times, and if the demands on the monthly budget are high. Um, Matt Matt's in a situation where I, I believe this is still the case. Almost 100% of his income is still coming from um, t-shirt printers, and so he is designing uh, for t-shirt printers, and and uh, and that is that is a that is a a low paying niche, but, but he's, he's got a lot of skills. So he's looking to, he's looking to get out, um, uh, or branch out is what I meant. Um, so anyway, here's, here's, here's my question. Um, say that you are speaking directly to, um, people who have not started their career yet. Uh, maybe they're graduating this semester and they're about to step into the world. Um, and they've got, you know, they've got something lined up, um, what what's kind of what's kind of the the top the top one or two things that you would tell them uh, to be aware of uh, you know or to pay attention to or to do kind of just some advice on those that are that are just leaving school. Yeah, um, the first thing I'd say is find your tribe. Right for me, uh, I didn't have many friends in the design sphere. The folks I went to school with, who I graduated with, who were friends before and after generally speaking, weren't the those who are pursuing creative careers. And those are great opinions to have on your work, on your career path, whatever. 
but there's something magical about being able to look at the person across the, the coffee table from you and talk about the CMYK values and they know what you're talking about. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, misery loves company. If you want to go with something cliche, but like there's a, there's a bajillion reasons why you need to find other creative people to be able to talk to, to be able to ask advice from, to help yourself, to help them. Um, so my first thing is, is find your niche, find your group. Uh, that may be people you graduated with, maybe people outside, maybe coworkers, and maybe your local AIGA chapter. It may be something you have to seek out and start yourself. But either way, find people and, and nurture those relationships. Um, and probably the second thing is is don't be so hard on yourself, right? I think I gave myself a lot of pressure. Uh, I mean, I still give myself a lot of pressure about like things I need to get finished at a certain time or things like uh, you know. Uh, <laughs> this is a perfect example. We were just talking when you, when we were setting this up. I was like, "Hey, you should probably take animator out of my description, right? right? Like that is unnecessary. Like I've been playing. I am not an like a for hire animator, but I've been playing with it. Like yeah. it's something I'm interested in. It's part of my creative world. You know, even micro interactions on UI design is arguably animation, which is stuff I deal with on a daily basis. So, like, I gave myself crap before we even started this podcast <laughs> about not feeling qualified enough to have that in the title right Right. which is stupid and i think it it's well let me let me back up it's natural it's needed because it makes you a humble person but don't beat yourself up right take a breather like it's okay to be a little narcissistic about whatever you're working on but then also like wake up a little bit like the sun's shining somewhere and there's no reason to be you know uh, as negative and i'm very very sensitive to those who have you know real um um mental illness challenges. Like I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm very much, I understand like that's a whole nother world that knock on wood, I've not had to personally experience. I deal with some anxiety and things like that, but I, like, I don't know what it's like to be in a state of depression or to have to deal with, you know, ADHD or things like that, that some are medical, some aren't, you know, the beautiful part about AFib is I've started to realize what it's like to not be able to wear your illness or your problem. Right. It's not something people can see. Right. The nice part is this is very easily medically fixed and or habitually fixed. Something like depression is not. So the point to this is like we like there's enough things out there to beat you up, right? There's no reason you should also beat yourself up. And that doesn't mean don't be a little cocky bastard and, you know, be a jerk to everyone around you, right? That's not what I'm saying. But, you know, give yourself some credit. Like you've you've earned where you are. And that's why I think like the concept of like, oh, like I, I'm just so lucky to be here. I'm so lucky to be in this position. Like I think that's BS. You earned your spot. Yeah. Right? You worked to get where you are. Given some of it was like the stars aligning or people being willing to give you a little more generosity than than they may have should have. But at the end of the day, like you've worked hard to get where you are, whether it be finishing school or starting your first job, give yourself some credit. Be easy on yourself. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. That is that is fantastic. And I mean, solidly, one of the major parts of of uh, imposter syndrome is that you rationalize and justify your successes, but completely own your failures. And so every time something goes wrong, you're like, "This is a hundred percent my fault." I can I can see a clear path of how I caused this to happen. But when yep. something goes right, you're like, eh, well, it's a confluence of events. This could have happened to anybody. I happen to be in the right place at the right time. I happen to know somebody, or my dad happened to know somebody, or whatever." But the fact of the matter is. <laughs> 
both of those situations are a mixture of both of those things that some yep. of that is going to be random, but you gotta, you gotta own your successes and your failures. Cause if you only own your failures, then you're literally just beating yourself up with, with no, no positive output for that. And yeah. so, yeah, I love, and I love that. There's, there's a very easy way to, to, and I won't dig too deep into this, but I, I took up journaling for a while when I was like going through my crap. Yeah. And then when I read it back, I realized that when I was journaling, it was always when I was upset. Right. right. And then often write down the happy things or the things I was excited about. So I've had to like make an active effort if I'm going to continue that to write down those things. But on an aside, what I started doing is I, I made a, a, I took a page of a sketchbook and then, you know, both pages, you can put up six months of, of time, you know, just breaking it a little like blocks. And what I did is every, whether it be monumental as like getting on a podcast or speaking at a conference or inconsequential as like, I had a really good dinner with a friend. Like I started to write down the date and a little description of what it was so that at the end of the year, when I'm like looking or any month when I'm feeling crappy about myself, be like, man, I didn't do anything these last six months. Like I haven't achieved these projects. I even canceled the freelance thing I was going to do, or I got fired. Like I can look back at this, this journal basically of just like cool crap that I did. Right. And it, and it could be any, it could be creative. It could be fun. It could be like, I, I've had a really good day today. It doesn't have to be super descriptive, but give yourself some kind of parameter. Cause you don't want to like write down, pages and pages of like, I, you know, made a good breakfast. Like, sure. That's great. But like every day of the week, that's a little excessive, but like, you know, some good things. Like I bought a bike today, you know, yeah. I went on my first long ride, like things like that. So you can look back and be like, when in those times of like feeling like crap about yourself, you could be like, you know what? I really did some cool stuff this month, last month, whatever, you know? And then you can give yourself that extra like jolt of energy that you didn't think you had just on, on proof of concept of, of you as a human being. Yeah. I love that. That's fantastic. Well, uh, hey man, if you uh, if you ever want to come on again, let me let me know. There's an open open cool. invitation if you feel like you uh, have got some stuff to get off your chest because this yeah. is fantastic. So, and I just wanted to hey, let's think- do a check in in a few months and see what's up. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Let's do that. Um, so we we've got some people in the chats. Thanks for thanks for jumping in. Uh, we're gonna wrap this up, but where where can we find your stuff, Taylor? Where's uh, where's the best place to uh, to follow along and, and kind of continue this conversation with you. Sure. Uh, I'm on all the social medias, uh, with the exception of Twitter. I don't bother with that black hole. Um, but my everywhere it's at Taylor Cashdan, T A Y L O R C A S H D A N. You can see it in the bottom left of the screen. Um, and my portfolio as well. If you want to see some of the cool stuff I'm working on is taylorcashdan.com. Uh, but other than that, I'm accessible. I'm, I'm big on like responding to people and chatting it up. So send me a message, drop a line, uh, and let's chat. Yeah, that's great. Thanks, man. And you guys can catch my stuff as always at uh, CoreyKerr.com, C-O-R-Y-K-E-R-R.com. This is going to go up on CoreyKerr.com slash 48HR on the 48-hour art check, and uh, which we'll be going live again with uh, Joshua Kimball as normally scheduled Monday and Wednesday. Um, thanks for tuning in, and we'll catch you guys in a couple days.